0: Welcome to Survive and Thrive, where Oklahomans reflect on COVID-19 and racism. Survive and Thrive is a 24-episode podcast series where our team will interview Oklahomans across a diverse spectrum as how to survive and thrive during the twofold crisis of the health and racial pandemics. Oklahomans are no stranger to tragedy. The state's history is checkered with traumas such as the Dust Bowl, Tulsa Race Massacre, Trail of Tears, and the Oklahoma City bombing. Out of those tragedies was born the Oklahoma standard. Now, as the state once again grapples with hardship, this time with COVID-19 and racial heartache, we will hear from multiple Oklahomans who must once again learn to survive and thrive. We are your hosts,
1: Carolee Langford and Brooklyn Wayland. We are currently here with Olinda Cavanaugh, a seasoned journalist originally from Oklahoma who is now retired from KFOR Channel 4. Good
0: morning to you. Good morning, Linda. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm here with Carolee Langford, my co-host. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Doing pretty good. Thank you. We're so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for agreeing. Well, um, first off, things are pretty unpredictable and just something that no one has ever experienced before. How are you doing kind of grappling with this pandemic?
2: It it is different. And you know, it's, my mother always brought us up to think that you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you react to it. And so we try to keep a positive attitude and we're just, what I miss are people. I miss the family gatherings and that type of
0: thing, Mm -hmm.
2: but we're taking it very seriously, and we're doing our very best to follow all the guidelines.
0: Yes, especially during the holidays. I feel like it's so much harder to not be around all of your loved ones.
2: Yes, we have a very luckily very close family, and so I have three sisters, and one sister always hosts Thanksgiving, the other one does Easter. We always do Christmas here, so and it's been that way for 40-some years. So it's a big change in our family dynamics, but we're we're trying to, we're just trying to make it through like everybody else.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your upbringing? You know, just where you were raised, that kind of thing? I was
2: raised here in Oklahoma. My dad was a school teacher and we had a wonderful upbringing because my dad came from a family of five boys. And he didn't know how to treat girls, so he treated us like boys, <laughs> which was wonderful because we were prepared to do almost anything life could throw at us. I mean, from carpentry to lawns to just anything, mm-hmm. you know, we pretty much knew how to do. And he always instilled in us, as did my mother, this belief that we could do anything we wanted to if you worked hard enough to do it. Mm-hmm. And that has been very, it's come in very handy for all of us in my family. And my dad, because he was a school teacher, we would take summers off and we would get into this old Buick and we would camp our way around the United States for six weeks at a time sometimes.
0: Wow. And so
2: it was just a priceless experience to see our country like that and to Mm -hmm. be a part of it and to understand even in grade school, when you were reading about locations, to have been there, and in your mind, it, you can correlate what you're learning in history books from having seen it. So it was just priceless. It was a wonderful childhood. Yeah. I've got no complaints.
0: Yes, <laughs> that sounds <laughs> yeah. like a dream, truly. I know. It
1: does. It was very good. The only thing that wasn't necessarily
2: good, like anybody who's a teacher family, is there was very little income.
1: So yes. That's why
0: we're camping all
1: the time. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Will you explain to listeners a little bit about um, what you did when you were a journalist and kind of your journey of going through that? Sure. I, um, when I graduated
2: from high school, I got a scholarship in journalism at the University of Oklahoma, as a result of some work I'd done in high school. And I truly, at that point, didn't know what I wanted to be. I thought that I would be a a teacher just like my dad. And then this journalism scholarship came along, and since we were all having to pay our own way through school, I thought, well, gosh, if they want to help, I'll study journalism. So
0: that's basically
2: (laughs) how I got into it and absolutely loved it. I worked for the uh, school newspaper at OU the whole time I was there, and I was lucky enough to be able to use my summers uh, on paid internships. I worked in New York at, at a magazine one summer. I worked uh, for the Oklahoma State Highway Department in their public relations office one summer. I, You know, it was just a great Experience. I worked for the Falls Valley Democrat one summer, a newspaper there. Oh, wow! So, I when I left OU, I had had a taste of virtually everything that I might be interested in, mm-hmm. except television. So I went to, after I graduated, I went to Channel 4 and I talked to the news director at the time and I said, you know, I'd like to work in television. He said, well, that's really wonderful, but you've got no experience. (laughs) I conceded that fact. And I said, well, would you just let me show up here? And he said, Why not? So for probably three or four months, I would just go in there, and I'd go out with the crews and pick up what I could, and that's how I got introduced to television news, which was probably just another one of those lucky things in my life, because Channel 4 at the time was one of the leading local television stations in the country in terms of production, in terms of photography, reporting. And so I was learning from the best. And in many cases, I was learning from the men and women who actually wrote the book on television news because they started the news department at Channel 4 when it first went on the air in the 1950s.
1: Wow, yeah.
2: So they had the blueprints for how news should be done. and. And they had it pretty much right. So that's how I got started. And then nobody ever left Channel 4 at that time. You know, if you got a job there, you were there for a long time. And so Channel 5 here in Oklahoma City had an opening. I applied. I got that. And I was a reporter. But then one of their anchors quit. And they put me in an anchor position. So that's kind of how it started. And I stayed in television news
0: for the whole time. Now remind me, I remember you saying something about being one of the first female anchors in the area or something like that. What was that? At Channel
2: 4, I was the first female co-anchor on the major newscasts.
0: Okay, and yes.
2: I can remember that Ernie Schultz, the news director at the time, called me into his office and I thought, oh gosh, what have I done now? <laughs> he said, well, close the door. And he said, we're going to try something new. I said, yeah, what are you going to try? And he said, we're going to try a co-anchor. I said, a co-anchor, he said, of the newscasts. I said, oh, because they were all males at that time Mm -hmm. on the major newscasts. And I said, okay. He said, we truly don't know whether it's going to work or not, but we'd like for you to start co-anchoring the six and, at that time, I think it was the five o'clock, the six and the 10 o'clock news. Wow! And so my husband and I started saving his paycheck in the event that it didn't work out, <laughs> and that's how it started. And truthfully, I think that everybody would recognize that the Federal Communications Commission was was pressuring television stations to put women on the air. Because this was the late 70s, early 80s, and you couldn't find many women on the air, few and far oh, between. My. Barbara right. Walters was on the air, but she was on the Today Show. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there just weren't many around. So it was kind of a a new experiment that I'm happy to say worked.
0: Well, that's great. Yeah. Would you just tell our listeners a little bit about your journey as a woman in that time um, in the industry? It was um, an interesting
2: thing because a lot of the people were very supportive. And and the people were, the men, were, were willing to share what they knew And were supportive of what was going on. Others, however, were not. Mm
0: -hmm. I know
2: that a couple quit. And one of the photographers uh, was not happy about having women in the newsroom. And when we would go out on stories, he wouldn't even talk to me. Mm. Uh, So there were strong feelings. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, because it was a good old boys club, you know, and they could say whatever they wanted or do whatever jokes they wanted. and, And that changed by introducing women into the newsroom. But Channel 4, truthfully, was, was a pioneer in many respects because they had some women who were working in positions that were not traditionally allocated to women, even before I got there, hmm. in terms of film production and the Bud Wilkinson show. He was a coach mm-hmm. at the University of Oklahoma, a very famous and gregarious coach. Yes. And they had the first coaches show, that came out of Channel Four. The first national coaches show came out of Channel Four with Bud Wilkinson, and they had a, a female working on that. So there were there were wonderful people who were role models who kind of set the the tone at Channel Four long before I got there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: And Pam Henry was another one. Pam was a remarkable woman. She suffered from polio when she was younger.
1: Oh my goodness! And
2: overcame all of that. In working at Channel 4, she was the first female hired there in the news department.
0: Hmm.
2: And Bob Dotson, who later went on to the Today Show and did remarkable reporting for them, tells the story of them knowing that they had to hire a female in the newsroom. And so they were looking for someone, and they knew it was going to have to be somebody remarkable. And Bob said that he was covering a fire in Norman. And he said all of a sudden, he sees this young woman move past him. She's on crutches, and she's got her microphone. She's holding her microphone in her mouth because her hands, of course, are on the crutches. And she's going through puddles and everything else to get up there to get this story. And that turned out to be Pam Henry, who at the time was working for a radio station. So he said he went back to the television station and told Ernie Schultz, the news director at the time, I think I found our first female reporter and it hmm. worked out. It turned out to be Pam Henry. who was just remarkable in so many respects. Yeah. And so that's how that's the background of that story.
1: Wow. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about why you're so passionate about journalism and how it does serve Oklahomans? I,
2: I remain passionate about journalism because without it, we don't have a democracy. If you don't have correct information from which you can make your own opinions and make decisions about not only who you vote for but about your own life then then you're at a disadvantage and so I always felt a responsibility when I was on the air to number one get it right and number two to to present both sides of the story which sadly I think we're lacking now now the situation is that most television shows that deal with politics are very geared to a specific audience.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: one of the reasons that happens is because if I, for instance, if I have very strong liberal views or if I have very strong conservative views, then I'm going to watch the television show or program that reinforces what I already think because yeah. then it makes me feel like I know what I'm doing. Right, of course. yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't necessarily give you a balanced view of both sides. Mm-hmm. And that changed, in my opinion, when they did away with the fairness doctrine, which one of the, the aspects of it was that it required you as a broadcaster to put on both sides of the story at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So anything that was of community interest, that particularly if it was controversial or if it was an election cycle. You had to have both candidates on at the same time so that people understood that they were talking about the same thing and giving their opinion so that you could compare them yourself and make decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think we lack that now. Yeah. And the other aspect of it is that people have gotten lazy. It used to be when we would cover town hall meetings or we would cover city council meetings, they would be packed with people who were coming down there and watching and listening and caring about what happened in those meetings, and now they're virtually empty except for you know the handful that might have an issue that has come up. The general public just does does not go to these meetings, and they don't participate as much as they used to in the democratic process. Mm-hmm. So that's a bit of a a hindrance as well. Yeah. So that's, in my opinion, where we are now. Where we need to return to making sure that people number one, participate more, and number two, get both sides of the
0: story.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. So kind of going a little bit deeper, Oklahoma has gone through so many different tragedies with the Trail of Tears, the Tulsa Race Massacre, the Oklahoma City bombing, the Dust Bowl, just to name a few. Um, But how do you feel that those tragedies have shaped the people of Oklahoma?
2: I think that we're just now paying attention, the, the needed attention, to the 1921 Tulsa race riots and the the Trail of Tears in 1838. I mean, we're just now understanding exactly what happened in those events and how destructive it was, not only to a culture, but to the individuals involved with it. Yeah. And so I think we're just now giving that the due thought that we should have given to it at the time. But but Mm -hmm. history changes. Our views today will not be the same as my children's 40 years from now. I think we become more educated and more sensitive and more understanding as time goes by. And it's just a matter of hoping that it happens a little more quickly than it has in the past. Mm -hmm. In the Tulsa race riots, dozens were killed, hundreds were injured, and thousands ended up homeless. But I don't ever recall learning about that in my history in grade school or or high school even. So it's a matter of education and understanding and moving forward. But I think all of these events, particularly the ones that are historically part of who we are, the Dust Bowl, for instance, I mean, that was such a serious situation in the 1930s that it ruined families. It ruined mm-hmm. the farming in Oklahoma, which, of course, was a huge... It was the backbone of Oklahoma at that time, along with oil. But when you had a situation like that where so many people were, were suffering, I think it also started building on what has now become known as the Oklahoma Standard, because if you didn't help each other, you were doomed. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could not survive this by yourself. So I think a lot of... That attitude was born even in the early days of Oklahoma history, where you helped your neighbor, even though that person may be a stranger, he was only a stranger until he needed help, and then you did what you could for them. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's what my grandparents remembered about the Dust Bowl and the fact that it was a, it was a horrible time. They were farmers, but they also remembered how the community would come together and share what they had for these families to be able to make it through. So I think it's been kind of a a hereditary thing in Oklahoma to take care of people other than those that you necessarily know. And I think, of course, it came to the front in the Oklahoma City bombing. And the reason it became a big deal at that time, in my opinion, was because this was the first time that the nation got a look at Oklahomans and our response to these tragic events. It was the first time... That there were live broadcasts that really literally went around the world through CNN in showing the story and telling the story and showing the response. And I think it surprised a lot of people to find Mm. the extent to which Oklahomans were willing to help in this horrific situation. I mean, Kathy Keating, first lady at the time, will tell you the story about how all of when these workers from around the country would return I believe they were staying in the, in the myriad, if I'm not mistaken, and cots were set up for them. And they would have candies on their pillows when they came back as a small thank you. And they would have letters from kids around the country, but particularly in Oklahoma, from schools, thanking them for being there. And I think it touched their hearts. And they talked about that when they were doing interviews nationally and internationally that were seen everywhere. And I think that's where the Oklahoma standard moniker itself was born. But Mm -hmm. it was a reflection, I think, of Oklahoma values that had a long time to grow from the dust bowl on, the depression, all of these times, Mm -hmm. and made us who we are. So in my opinion, that's probably where the name itself became more well known.
0: Now, you were, you were actively like, working in the journalism field in the Oklahoma City area during the bombing. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely, yes. So can I you... started at Channel 4 in 77, and the bombing, of course, was in 95.
0: Okay, yes. So take us back to that and set the scene for us about what what you experienced and that kind of thing.
2: Okay. It was, it was a very odd situation because I wasn't even in Oklahoma when it happened. I was in Vietnam. Oh, wow. A photographer and I and a former POW, Dan Glenn, had traveled back to Vietnam to mark the 25th anniversary of the fall of Saigon, which was virtually the end of the war and the end of uh, the United States' involvement in Vietnam. And Dan Glenn had been a POW for six years in in the, in the what the prisoners called the Hanoi Hilton. It was a horrible horrible experience. Torture and lack of food. And and so we thought we would take Dan back to Vietnam for the first time since he had been released as a prisoner as part of this marking of the 25th anniversary of the fall of Saigon. So it was late one night and I had gotten up during the middle of the night because we were still suffering from jet lag And in Vietnam, electricity was scarce, and so you had a credit card that you would put in this socket at the door, which would turn on the electricity in the room. And unless that card was in the socket, there was no electricity. And so I got up in the middle of the night and put the card in the socket to have light in the room, Mm -hmm. and it also turned on the television at the same time. And to my surprise, I heard this very familiar voice of a Channel 4 reporter And it it was on CNN. And so I walked over to the television set, and all I saw was this panel of people. There were probably 30 people at this press conference, but it was everybody who had anything to do with Oklahoma City at that time. You know, it was the chief of police, the fire department, the mayor, and they were all very grim. And pretty soon they cut away to a a shot of the Murrow building and truthfully I didn't even recognize it. I couldn't even figure out what it was. Mm -hmm. And then as more information was coming through the television set, it became obvious that there'd been some type of explosion.
0: Hmm.
2: And so I got I went over to the phone in the hotel room and I called the photographer who was up on the other floor. I said, You gotta turn on your television set. And so he did and then I called Channel 4 and I talked to the news director said, you, you've got to get home. And so keep in mind, we were in a com- communist country and we could not go come and go as we pleased. So we went to the airport and after several exchanges of money, finally got on a flight back to the United States. But what I remember about that and what was remarkable was every place we stopped from Singapore to London on this crazy trip back all of the headlines were about Oklahoma City and all of the television sets were turned on to the the first keep in mind this is the first national coverage of an event like that that's being covered live and so that's the only way we picked up any information we got back to Oklahoma City the bombing happened on Wednesday morning I was back on the air by Friday morning I think I wasn't even there when it happened and my only experience of those first few days was what I could see in foreign countries and their reaction to it, and they were all so sympathetic. I mean, when you'd show them your passport and it showed that I was from Oklahoma, they, without pause, and every time they would say, "We are so sorry." Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just struck a chord around the nation. So that's that's how I came to find out about it.
0: That's such a unique way to find out. Ah, uh, yeah.
2: It was different, yes. It was a surprise. Because I remember my folks were a little concerned about me going to Vietnam, concerned for my safety, when actually my safety would have been more in jeopardy here in Oklahoma City yeah. on that particular day.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. So
2: it was, it was a remarkable experience. But what I will always take away from it was seeing how Oklahomans reacted. And this was also the first time that the Associated Press had the ability to send photographs around the world, still photographs, of Mm -hmm. what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I talked to the photographer who was there that morning, and it was his first experience with a digital camera. And he was taking photographs and went back to the AP offices and transmitted them around the world within a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. And so, The Oklahoma City bombing was really the first use of digital technology and live coverage by television stations in the world that I'm aware of. So it was, I think, part of the world reaction was just being able to get the information so quickly and feeling part of it by watching the live
1: coverage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So, I know we did talk a little, or we mentioned the Tulsa Race Massacre, so if you don't mind switching topics just a little bit, and let's talk a little about the racial heartache we are seeing today, and how do you think Oklahomans can be honest about our history, specifically the racial incidents, and learn and grow from those? Well, I think that just understanding
2: it and and having it be part of our historical history that's talked about is probably the most important, because there were a lot of people my age growing up who had never even heard of the Tulsa Race Riots. Uh, we grew up at a time when Clara Looper had started the first sit-ins in right. Oklahoma City. Yeah. And they were peaceful sit-ins. And she, she organized this group of... Young people, not even high school age for the most part, who would go in and sit in these um, drug stores that were not open to black people. And she had the most remarkable ability to keep things on a peaceful level and yet initiate change. And it was a painful time. It's still a painful time. But yet, Oklahoma led the way. I think that most would agree that Clara Luper was among the first to attempt that type of protest and have it be as successful as it was. So Oklahoma has a history, like all states in our nation of not responding the way we would look back now and say, oh my gosh, how could that have even happened? We all change. We all evolve. My views are different than my grandparents or their grandparents before them. And hopefully my children will have different views than even I grew up with. Mm -hmm. So we're evolving as human beings, but maybe just not as quickly as most of us would like.
1: And we did kind of also mention the Oklahoma standard. Now, As an Okie yourself, how have you seen Oklahomans push through to enact that standard recently and come back stronger than before? Well, recently, we have
2: experienced these ice storms that have been not pleasant. People were without electricity. Sometimes for up to two weeks, if not longer. Yeah. But as I would drive through neighborhoods around here, there would be extension cords. I'm not saying this is necessarily the safest thing to do, but it's an <laughs> indication of neighbors helping neighbors. There would the south side of the street might have power, the north side wouldn't. And so the people on the south side would run extension cords from their homes to their neighbors across the street to give them some power. Mm-hmm. So I think that we continue to try to help each other, even if even if we don't know people. Once we know they need something, then it's the first introduction to saying, "How can I help?" Mm-hmm. And I see that a lot, even as an individual, not not necessarily on. On news stories anymore, but as an individual, I see people always stopping to help. Flat tires—I mean, you can't sit by the roadside very long before generally somebody comes by and tries to help. Mm -hmm. It's just small things, but things that I think help make the Oklahoma standard what we're known for.
0: Well, how do you think that that we can come back? Um, more resilient um, and better than before. Like how can Oklahomans along with the rest of the nation kind of alter the path that we are going forward in and rather than just going back to normal.
2: I suspect you're talking about the the political situation and the division.
0: Yes, ma'am. Is that what
2: you're talking about right now? Yes, ma'am. I don't know that I have all the answers. I mean, it's, it's a dangerous, unpleasant situation Mm-hmm. When you can't talk to people and and have your views heard and listen to theirs at the same time. If we can't communicate with each other, then all we do is build up our own beliefs and what we already believe in instead of being open-minded enough to, to listen to other people as well. Because there's, I, I always like to think I'm right, <laughs> but I've been shown <laughs> that I'm not always Right. <laughs> about that is by talking to other people and hearing their views and being able to in your own mind come to grips with the fact that that there are different ways to look at at situations and different ways to handle them and if we can do that I think that we're going to be far better off than this divisive line in the sand that some have drawn where they think they are completely right and everybody is completely wrong everybody else is completely wrong because that's not reality and I don't. And I don't have all the answers. I think the other answer, as I mentioned before, is is participating in what's going on and educating yourself enough to see both sides of the story.
1: Absolutely, yeah. But that takes time. It yeah. does. And sometimes people
2: aren't willing to do that.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So to put it simply, how how can we find? the light as a state in these dark times, what does that look like for us? Well, I think
2: I think it's a cycle. My son and I were talking about this the other day, and he was thinking, and he was upset about the, the current situation. And I said, Paul, I said, it's not, this isn't the first time. I said, you guys don't have any memories of the 60s with the race riots in Los Angeles and riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago I said we've always been a country evolving, and this is just another step in that evolution. That's not necessarily pleasant, and it's it's a shock to people who have who aren't old enough to know that there have been crises in this country before, and we survived them right. through democracy. And all I can say is that that we each have a responsibility to educate ourselves, to be open to other views, and to move forward not only as a, a city and a community and a state, but as a nation. And I think that we do that with a very basic understanding that we're all human beings and respect for one another.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
2: but again, I don't have all the answers. I'm looking for them as well.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think we are, especially because this... There's no guidebook for this, especially what we're going through right now.
2: Well, and it scares young people because they've never seen the nation divided. But we have often had divisions in this country that we've worked through successfully. Mm -hmm. And I think that we will work through this one successfully. Uh, Will it be painful? Absolutely. (laughs) All division is painful. And all of the situations this country has gone through in the past have been painful. From the trail of tears to to the Tulsa race riots, to to whatever you want to look back on and note, none of it's been easy. Right. But we have the ability, and we have the character for the most part, to do it, and we will. Change is never easy. Oh. Even, you know, changing oh, in yeah. your own <laughs> life is not easy, but you adapt. Right. And as long as we keep our focus on the goal of making this a better city or making this a better state or a better country for everyone, then the answers will come more easily.
0: Well, is, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners or anything that we should have asked you that we didn't?
2: No, you did a good job. I am just, I am always, I always feel lucky to have been born in Oklahoma. And I think I will always feel that. And the reason is because of the character of most of the people here, it's a very personable and personal relationship that you're able to have with people. I can recall when my kids traveled to other states and to other places, they said they were always glad to come home because of just the small things. People hold doors open for you, you know, they, they're they polite and Having grown up with that, I think they took it for granted until they went to cities where that was not the case. Mm. And if we can keep that in our state and in our city and teach our kids to be that way, I think it just continues this concept of the Oklahoma standard into generations to come. Now, if we fail to teach that, it'll die just like anything else but I don't think
1: that it will. Well, I have sincerely enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with us today. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, I'm so proud of you guys and as women going out into the world and seeing things differently and moving things differently, there are still so many changes that you'll make and it's just remarkable the world that you can help build. I was talking to my daughter the other day. She was talking about maternity leave and she said, well, how many days did you get when you had Paul, my, my son? Mm-hmm. I said, Paul was born on Wednesday. I was back at work on Monday. Oh, there my was word. no maternity leave.
0: Oh, my <laughs> goodness! You
2: just it didn't exist. Uh-huh. So
0: wow. all of these
2: things kind of evolved. And it's all for, it's all for the better. Mm-hmm. But it takes time. And it takes young women like you to continue to, to fight for those changes that you want and that you see need to be made. And it's going to happen.
0: Yes. So hang on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. We are just so grateful to have talked to you today. Absolutely. It was
2: my pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. All right, right, you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for listening to Survive and Thrive. In the next episode, we will hear from Karen Marinelli, plaza towers tornado survivor on how oklahomans have learned to band together and support each other after a tragedy you can find us anywhere you listen to your podcast by searching survive in okla we are your hosts carolee and brooklyn join us every wednesday for new episodes also participating in this podcast project are Kimberly Burke, our manager, Jesse Smith, researcher and writer, G. Schwan Fan, the social media coordinator, and Miranda Von Dale, our audio engineer. This podcast is presented by Gaylord News in collaboration with the Institute for the Study of Human Flourishing.